0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I do have a great show for you today. My friend Jay Warner Wallace is going to be joining in just a minute. But uh, Jim Wallace has a book called Cold Case Christianity. It's been updated and and it's now an, an expanded edition. Ten years after the fact, it's a spectacular book. I have it in my library and I'm also holding another copy in my hand. And I encourage you to get a copy yourself. Jim, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. You know, yeah. I love
1: being on this show. I, been I mean, I've been stuck in, not stuck, but I've been away from my uh, access to a phone. So yeah. I haven't been, I'm not, I'm not as consistent as I'd like to be over the summer. So I'm glad to be back in the swing of it now that fall is here. Yeah. Are you in the mood to do radio today?
0: Well, even if I'm not, I'm, I'm still going to do it with you. So how's that? <laughs> I love your honesty. See, I talked yes. to your uh, buddy, Greg Kokel this week and. Did you? Yeah. Next to me, he said, you're like the most interesting person he knows. <laughs> that's probably what you hear from everybody. Well, yeah, right? they always they always say that. They always or, say whoever that you're talking to next yeah. to you, Bill. Yeah, that's right. That's the most interesting or, person I or I, know. I don't it remember. It just
1: be that you're you're present when you're asking that question. So What are <laughs> they going to say? <laughs> yeah, I kind of paint him into a corner, don't I? Yeah, you do. It's good. Yeah. By the way, I was going to say the same thing. Next to next to you, Greg's the most pers-
0: uh, interesting <laughs> person I know. <laughs> I do like Greg. He's an interesting guy for sure, and he was talking about gardening versus harvesting, which I th- think is a great uh great concept and he said you were in his garden uh, that's when you true. were not a believer which i thought was that's right
1: cool. yeah and I, it's, it's one of those things where i think it's important and even when we do these these hours together that we we articulate christianity in a way that that is uh reasonable because that's what i needed to hear back in those days when i was listening to greg you know i i was exam it took me about nine months to a year to really dig through the stuff that i even wrote about in cold case christianity you know and and so as I'm digging through that, and I was obsessive about it, you can ask my wife, I was just nuts. I just I just was so intrigued by whether this could possibly be true, especially as I started to assemble this case, and it was looking like it was heading in a certain direction. And I, I still, though, when I would share what I was learning with other Christians, um, nope, like everyone's like, what? <laughs> like, I thought, well, wait a minute. Well, how did you become a Christian? I would ask these people because I thought, well, how was it? I'm discovering stuff that you as a, you know, maybe a 20-year Christian weren't aware of. And I started to lose my confidence that this was a group that was even aware of the case. And then I stumbled <laughs> onto Greg's show and listening to Greg gave me what I needed, which was to, to hear another uh, like-minded voice that I could identify with that um, was just very thoughtful and methodical in his approach. And sure enough, that he was one of those, Yeah, you know, he's absolutely right. That's why I wrote the foreword for his new book, because I felt like this is a guy who contributed
0: to my to my being here. So I wanted to kind of repay the favor. Yeah, well, he's a big fan of yours, as am I, of course. And let's talk about your uh, ex- updated and expanded edition of Cold Case Christianity. There's a whole bunch of great stuff in the back I'd like to chat about today, if that's uh, okay with you. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, but I- I'm open to wherever you want to take this well, as well. It, it, yeah, and, well, and part of it too for me was I needed. This is
1: the stuff that I wrote in the back. You know, we we did. Why would anyone do a tenth anniversary, right? I mean, I saw Greg did the tenth anniversary of Tactics, and as I was reading through the updated version of Tactics, uh, his first, you know, really he had a book before that, but this was like his like splash book, mm-hmm. and I thought, what's the point in rewriting a classic, right? But but he he uh, added so much to the tenth anniversary edition. I thought, well, if, if I can add that much to this 10th anniversary edition well then I'm willing to do it and so I made a point of making sure I every change I made in the book I left in red ink so I could look at the publisher and say okay this is why we need the extra pages this is this is what we're adding this is the new stuff and and so I thought it was worth doing and one of those uh, big bigger chunks of the new stuff is the stuff in the back of the book which really kind of tries to respond to some of the objections i've gotten in the last 10 years or some of the questions i've gotten in the last 10 years since writing the first edition this is this is what i try to chronicle at the back and i call it just the case cross-examined so it's just really an effort to answer
0: some of the questions that hopefully your listeners have had also that we can help them answer yeah jim when you write a book do you have that moment of panic where you you send it off and you go okay i guess i'm done tweaking it for now
1: well always i, yeah. I mean because that would be my problem if, yeah, I, I'm like, your your own worst critic, right? I mean, oh, yeah. I am my own worst critic and I'm constantly thinking and I run it by so many people, um, that I trust that are will help me to edit, not just grammatically, but uh, conceptually, you know, um, and some of the folks that, that, that like in Greg on Greg's staff. Um, and Greg's one of those folks that I want to see. What do you think? You know, what do you nice. think I, you know, I captured it? So, so we're, I think we do that for each other. Um, so this is a group of, the apologetics community is pretty small Mm -hmm. and and very very tight so i mean everyone knows everybody else and we're all
0: cheerleading for the other so this is why i hope it turned out well yeah jay warner wallace is my guest his book cold case christianity updated and expanded edition is available right now i recommend you get it jim let's talk about uh, becoming a two decision christian what does that mean
1: well i mean a lot of it is that you know when i wrote the end of the book the first time I, I had a different ending for the book and and what I wanted to say 10 years ago was that we don't need another million dollar apologist we we need a million one dollar apologist i've said that to you before in many times. A number of
0: places yep.
1: and 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 my 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 publisher was like yeah i'm not sure you should say that because it sounds pejorative it sounds like you're you're going to offend every other working apologist in the industry and, and um so I didn't put it in and, and I took an approach here that I hope is more helpful for people. I didn't actually say that, I think, until I wrote forensic faith, but, but here I wanted to make the point that we, we have a tendency to think that our obligations are kind of our commitment. Once we say yes, make the first decision that we trust Christ as savior. We're done. And, and in many ways, theologically we are done. No, we're in the kingdom. We Once you decide that to accept Christ as Lord um, as savior and you believe that he rose from the grave and you confess this with your mouth you're saved and and so that in that sense that's true but there are other like calls on our uh duties that are offered for us in scripture and one of those is in first peter where we're called to be able to give the reason especially in times of of testing in times of challenges like why are you so calm you know like well part of that's going to be The case for like, why do we believe that Christianity is true? And can we make that case? Can we, can we actually express it, articulate it in a certain way? And we often make a decision for Jesus as savior, but never decide to do the hard work that's required. Uh, And by the way, right now it's football season, right? So Mm -hmm. we're all, I mean, I've got them in a fantasy league with my sons and (laughs) listen, we we, I can make a case. I can Mm -hmm. win people to my team. (laughs) Am I spending as much time winning people to Christ by offering Mm -hmm. the case for Christianity? So I, I, we have, that's the second decision. And I really think because that's not an optional decision in scripture, that's not one of those things where Peter says, Hey, you know, some of you are going to have this position in the church and good luck. You know, we're going to pray for that exalted position. No, he's saying that every one of you who made a first decision needs to decide now to prepare yourself to make a case for this. And if you aren't making the second decision, but then I think you're a one-decision Christian, and you're really living an abbreviated life because you're not accepting the next step of your responsibilities, which is to make disciples. And part of what making disciples means is not just making converts. It's 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 instructing, teaching them all that I have taught you, Jesus says. And a lot of what he taught was, hey, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe the evidence of these miracles I've worked in front of. There are good reasons Jesus offered both an indirect and indirect evidence To make a case for his deity and we just need to be able to repeat those we need to be able to articulate those we got to spend time studying it first
0: Mm -hmm. jim what do you think makes people reluctant to become disciple makers
1: well i always tell tell susie this all the time that that when you're trying to figure out someone's motive like why would he do that well it's pretty simple you always want to default it's biblical anthropology like if, if someone is we're probably more possessed by our fallen nature then we are animated by our desire to be holy because we're fallen creatures. So good. So yeah. So basically, if I'm looking at why would you do something? Probably because it's the easy way. <laughs> it has to do with our yeah. fallen nature. That mm-hmm. we don't want to work as hard because we don't. We're fallen. We we want to shortcut everything. It's we are selfish. We want the time to be ours. And, and and so what you're this is this is for me, it's not like an academic thing, but it, it does involve brain headspace. I'm constantly thinking, it's like, what are you going to fill your head with? and so i'm lucky i'm in i'm married to susie who is who is you know is is as interested in theology as i am so when we have time at night we are not watching netflix we're we're listening to sermons or listening to scripture she's a great encourager for me because she's geeked out about the same things that i want to be geeked out Mm, about and even if i'm lazy that night she will encourage me not to be lazy and i can encourage her not to be lazy and so I think a lot of it, if you're wondering why does somebody do anything? Well, if you're talking about a human, it's probably because he's taking a shortcut that, or she's taking a shortcut that benefits them because we are selfish and lazy by nature.
0: Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I love this line from your book. And then all we need to be effective Christian casemakers, attentive, conscientious, and willing to get in the game. It's pretty simple, Jim.
1: Yeah, it it, it is. And I, and I think that, um, the the willing to get in the game part is, is the tough part, right? Because that's, that's really, and I think we are, if if we can do something simple, like attend church, um, we often will see that as good enough, you know? And, And, and so that's really where you ask yourself, okay, well, I, don't, I I think sometimes when we tell parents, hey, here's how you're going to bring up your kids in the faith, there's a sense in which, oh, it's another burden. I got another set of things I got to do. I got I to gotta take time out to teach this or that. Well, no, it's not that so much is that our kids pick up on our passions. And if, if you just change your passion, what are you passionate about? If you're seriously interested, it doesn't feel like work. Like, I, I don't think anyone who's reading these websites right now to pick up the waiver wire in fantasy football considers it work. <laughs> they're just geeked out on who they want to replace that injured player with. Right. And so they're just in. They're just excited. They're interested. And so it doesn't seem like work. That's the difference, I think. It, it does our does it, does our faith feel like a task that we have to endure? Or are we just so
0: interested by nature that it, it's like what we would choose to do if we had nothing else to do? Mm-hmm. Jim, do you think our generation – has grown up seeing evangelism and discipleship as two different activities. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and and which of the two is easier? Do you think? So uh, so evangelism. So evangelism well, yeah, it it's, it's, it's it's right because your salvation occurs in a moment. Your sanctification yeah. takes the rest of your life, and it's like it's like, <laughs> yeah. And and part of what sanctifies you is the stuff that irritates you. That's the other thing, and nobody wants to be irritated. Like you're going to be sanctified so much more by your marriage but from all those points of friction that you have to make choices about how you respond and the kinds of choices you make determine the kind of direction you're going to go in your walk. And, and so without those challenges, you know, it's like, if you think about it, we all respect courage. Well, courage requires danger. That's true. Courage is a response to something. Oh, you love patience. That's a response to a challenge. You love compassion. That's a response to hardship. You have to have the hard things, the broken things, the messy things to get all of the beautiful virtues that we consider discipleship. So so that's why I think we would much rather just you know, hear the gospel and get saved than be transformed over time, because most of what transforms us is some form of exercise. It's it's a rub, you know. Mm -hmm. You don't get big in the gym unless you're willing to tear a few things. Yeah. And that's what you have to do, I think, in order to become a disciples Christian. Yeah.
0: You and your buddy Greg Koch will say a lot of smart things. Well, Greg says smarter things than me. He's (laughs) an old man. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a break. This is going fast already, isn't it, Jim? Come on, we're already... That's through right. Through our first break, we'll come back. Just because we'll... you're the most interesting person I know. Thank uh, you. In nice front to... of Greg Kokel. <laughs> All right. We'll be, back. be right back with Jay Warner Wallace. His book is Cult Case Christianity. It's updated and expanded edition. is now available, and I do believe you should get your hands on one. We're going to come back and talk about the danger of becoming an abbreviated Christian. You don't want to be that. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good. I wanted you to hear it again, so enjoy. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined me, I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace. His book is called "The Case Christianity." It's updated and expanded. That's the after ten years, he's added some wonderful things to it. I do believe you should get yourself a copy. We're talking about being a two decision Christian. First, you want to put your faith in Jesus. And secondly, you want to be disciple-makers. Jim, if you just would continue this discussion with us about the danger of what you say is becoming an abbreviated Christian. Yeah, well, I think the danger
1: is that, number one, uh, we have a tendency to see this as an option, and we assign it to others. Yeah, good point. So, so you know, what we do is... Um, we do, by the way, we do this on every level because we are by nature. We want something for the least amount of work. Mm-hmm. So, if you are raising high schoolers, you would like to probably a lot of people I know from being a high school pastor would love to assign to reassign their um, spiritual formation to the youth pastor, right? Like whatever they're just find it. Like I thought the people would even say, "Well, I picked this church because of its youth ministry,"
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's as if oh well, yeah, that one hour, you know, or maybe two hours a week. If you're meeting on Wednesdays, also or whatever, is supposed to be sufficient to kind of handle the spiritual development of your high schooler. That's the problem, right? It means that we we have a tendency to kind of dispatch that to somebody else. The same way we would say, "Well, I, I'm not their my kid's teacher. I give that to my, my the, the the school that I send them to." So we have to kind of reclaim some of our our duties, some of our responsibility. Like we've created this industry within the church of Christian apologists who are just really doing what every Christian is called to do, but they don't, we don't. And so now we have this industry of speakers and writers that really shouldn't exist. It's like, <laughs> this, this should just be what every one of us looks like. Mm-hmm. Whatever one of us sounds like mm-hmm. when we talk about Jesus, we yeah. have at least an informed view. And so we've created now a cottage industry that doesn't need to exist. And sometimes I'm embarrassed that we're part of that because it feels like this is what well, I'm like, it's like, <laughs> Do you, do you bring someone out to your, your conference to pray? Well, you probably do that yourself. Right. So, so, I mean, a lot of this is like stuff that we should be doing on our own that we've just assigned to somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm. But since you wrote the book, Cold Case Christianity, you are equipping people all over the country, uh, conferences, university campuses. And in the book, you have uh, brought up a number of questions that get asked repeatedly. I'd love to talk about a couple of those if you're up for it. Um, For example, Jim Wallace, uh, how can we be certain the apostles really died for their claims?
1: Okay, well, this is something that we look at as a piece of evidence, right? We would often kind of cite this as um, evidence for the veracity of their claims that they were willing to die for them. But of course, the question is, how do we know they actually died for them? And a lot of skeptics will challenge that. And why? Well, because the records, the accounts um, are varied. And some of them are more trustworthy than others, no doubt about it. So, like, you can be more certain about maybe how Peter or Paul died than you can about how, let's say, um, F- Philip died. Mm-hmm. Because because the records we have are better. Or you may not trust a document in which the death is recorded as much as you trust a, a different document. So I think that this is where the skepticism uh comes. And, and actually, you see it even more because what I've noticed is in today's culture, like, there's a sense in which we feel like, persecu- like, like Christianity is being persecuted. It's, it's being challenged. And then there's a whole side of, of the culture that says, Oh, please, you Christians are always claiming to be persecuted. You've never really been persecuted. Give me a break. You, you ended up taking over the Roman empire. It was a religion of the empire. Just give me a break. So I think we have to be able to respond. How do we even, re- how do we know? Now there's a great book, by the way, that I did not write that my buddy Sean McDowell wrote called the fate of the apostles. It's a big read, but mm-hmm. at least it kind of charts the depth and how, what you could trust. And what how much you could trust each of these accounts so that's a great book to look at but here's what i would say and i try to when i respond to these questions to kind of give it to you in in pieces that are memorable so there's three points i typically make when somebody challenges that you can't be certain that the apostles really died for their claims here's what we do know we do know that the apostles they began look, three things they began with an eyewitness tradition Mm -hmm. So if you read the book of Acts, right, book of Acts, if you really look at what it is, what is it? It's a a description of the disciples as eyewitnesses, right? These are the the disciples who are when Judas is replaced by Peter, he replaces him with another eyewitness, Mm -hmm. somebody who had seen the Christ from the baptism all the way to the resurrection. And these folks were unafraid to share what they saw, what they experienced, right? Because they knew that they had actually seen it and actually experienced it. And they did that even when it resulted in some form of mistreatment. They would say something about Jesus being imprisoned. They'd be mistreated. And the earliest reliable record of the disciples clearly indicates that they were on a path, that if they continued on that path, it's not leading anywhere good. So the very earliest records we have at least show that they were unafraid and were probably going to get in trouble for their statements. Next, I would say that the apostles began a uniform record. And what I mean is... That, that even though all the details related to their deaths, you know, they, they do vary. Like if you get different um, um, uh, documents, different manuscript evidence, the deaths do vary from tradition to tradition. But the fact that they died as martyrs is a point of uniform agreement. Here's mm-hmm. what I mean. There's not a counter argument. It's not like we're saying, well, in this document, it says that he died. In this document, it says he didn't No, the uniform Uh, manuscript evidence we have agrees that these folks died. And just as importantly, there just aren't any other competing ancient traditions that contradict that. And you would think there might be, if you're trying to dispel this rumor about the, the, the the resurrection, but there aren't any pagan accounts, for example, right. That describe the apostles, like just, you know, living their life till they leisurely die of old age. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, you don't have that. So we have a uniform record of their, deaths and the last thing i would say is that this began this initiated a committed movement and that movement is really dependent upon the level of commitment which was expressed through their death so for generations following the the life and then the martyrdom of the apostles those earliest christian uh, believers all the new christians they actually like Sought to emulate these guys. They 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 wanted to 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 copy the kind of level of commitment and dedication these um, apostles had shown, and so how did they do it? Well, they did it by following in their footsteps, and we have an entire movement of martyrdoms of people who are dying for the assertions of the apostles. What do they do? They're just simply copying the apostles. And you'll see early ancient manuscript evidence in which they're saying that they're saying that I'm going to die the same way the apostles died. So Mm -hmm. we have good reason to believe they died as they were recorded. So I would say it's on those three legs, right? The eyewitness tradition that begins in the book of Acts, the uniform record that there's no counter uh, story related to their deaths. And finally to the committed movement of martyrdoms that followed them that claim to be based on their example those three reasons i think are consistent for us to conclude that yeah these folks did die as they have always claimed to have have died Mm -hmm. in in the history of christianity as and by the way bill our death you and i as committed christians if we said we would die for this cause it has no evidential value because lots of people die for what they don't know is the truth right or don't or don't know is the lie But here, this is the one group that would know if it's a lie. So you might fly a plane into a building because you think, you know, 1700 years ago or whatever it was, that there was actually a uh, an event that you believe occurred, but you don't know. You weren't there. This is the group that would have been there, that would have known their death has high evidential value, even though the death of Christians in this generation has low evidential value. And that's why I think we can use that as a piece of evidence, uh, inclining us to, to trust that the Gospels are telling
0: us the truth about Jesus. Yeah, super interesting, Jim. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. His book is Cold Case Christianity. It came out 10 years ago, but he's updated and it has an exp- expanded ver- uh, version of it, and it's out right now. I believe it's time, you, if you've not bought this book, to to get it, because you're going to love having it. If you have any questions or comments for Jim, let me know, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. And we would love for you to know that we want to pray for you. It's uh, a prayer, it's just an ongoing conversation with God and it can change your life and let us know how we can pray for you. You can uh, call or text your prayer request to that same number, 877-933-2484. Eight four, or you can visit MyFaithRadio.com. Be right back with Jim in a minute. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. If you're just joining me, I hope you've had a great day, and thanks for uh, tuning into the show. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. He's a Dateline featured cold case detective, a very popular speaker. He's a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and he's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola. Always glad to have him on and. I would say of um, Jim's presentation of the gospel was one of the most compelling I've ever seen. Uh, and I've seen at least two or three people do this. So uh, it was really nice to uh, still to this day say, Jim, your presentation I saw that day was amazing. Well,
1: are not just saying that because we're in front of each other. <laughs> no, no. Same way no. that we're talking about how interesting we are. <laughs> so exactly. we got to be careful with that. Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, I'm, oh, I'm right. grateful that you were there that day because, uh, yeah, this is that I think we have to make and that's you know how I approach this. Typically, I'm, I'm trying to make this as visual as possible, even when we're, you know, even when we're on the stage. Right. Um And and part of that is just what we try to do in the book. Uh, that's why we added, you know, we added 300 illustrations to this book. Yeah. From the original version. Um And, and all, also, Bill, you know, and all that stuff you. that we. Yes, I get to draw those. Yes. Um But but, you know, it's interesting, too, that the other thing we did. Is that for this tenth anniversary book? If you go to coldcasechristianitybook.com, we have created a visual curriculum. So you talk about how to become a case maker, how to take the next, make the next decision. Well, if you buy the book, but we'll send you the links to the entire ten and a half hour Sweet. visual case making course. It's got a lot of written material along with it. I think you'll find it really helpful. You can earn a certificate. The point here is that—and it's also got a 410-slide uh, PowerPoint. It's got over 50 Bible inserts that make the case. The point is we're trying to get those free resources. In the first week of this book being available, already 350 people have started to take that course. Oh,
0: fantastic.
1: So what we're trying to do is get people to, to do this, to
0: become a two-decision Christian and be able to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now, as you have spoken at universities and campuses and all kinds of conferences— all around the U.S. and and abroad, you get these kinds of questions that pop up all the time. And in your book, you have shared some of them, and you've given Mm -hmm. great defense of these questions, like, how can the Gospels be eyewitness accounts if they include events or facts the writers didn't see? It's a great question. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's the, one of the things you'll hear all the time. Well, a couple of things you'll hear. You'll hear number one, it, you can't trust it because it's hearsay. So pe- for people who know something about how uh, eyewitness testimony is offered in court, you know, you, if you, uh, if you're, uh, let's say your, your, your brother uh, saw something, Bill, and told you about it and saw a crime occur and he saw the guy was in a blue Toyota. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you can't go into court and say in the court, yeah, you know, I was talking to my brother yesterday and he said that uh, he saw this guy in a blue Toyota. Well, well, hold on a minute. I can't cross-examine you because you aren't the observer. It's your brother who observed it, right. and you have a right to be, to face your accuser. So, so, so you're not gonna. That's hearsay. It's second hand. I need to have the actual eyewitness. If you didn't see it, so. But this is a very different standard. You, that's a standard we we hold in criminal trials because we would rather let a you know a hundred guilty people go than falsely convict one innocent person. So we have a high, high, high standard for eyewitnesses that it doesn't apply to history because if that was the case you couldn't trust anything about your great-grandparents if you didn't see it yourself you couldn't trust what your grandparents tell you about your great-grandparents because that's hearsay so at some point you gotta say okay well hold on that up that that standard it is it's 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 useful in the confines of a criminal system that's trying to protect the innocent it's not useful in studying history because we could never know anything beyond the lifetime of eyewitnesses and everything you know about history is beyond the lifetime you don't have access to those eyewitnesses so here's what i would say how do you? How can you do this? How can the Gospels be eyewitness accounts, right? If they include things that you d- didn't witness? Well, because th- there's three things we're we're looking for. And that's why I try to make this simple, right? Let me give it to you three things. So when you're talking, uh, when you're reading statements from cold cases, um, they were they, those have been closed. Those have been open for decades. So so these were written a long time ago. And they typically include three kinds of what I call first-hand, quote-unquote, eyewitness descriptions. First is first-hand experience. Those are the events, right, and the occurrences that the people who's witnessed them personally observed and experienced. That's what we typically think of as eyewitness. Okay, great. That's the one kind of first-hand experience. The other kind of first-hand experience or description we're looking for is what I call first-hand access. Those are the events and the occurrences uh, that, that they didn't personally observe. But they were aware of based on information given to them by someone else at the time. Now, that, that's something you can actually uh, use, but you can't cross-examine it. But it is something that is going to impact how they think about what they do observe. The last thing is firsthand knowledge. And that's just the general cultural Um, kind of, you know, the the conditions that were present in the culture, uh, the common knowledge, the common uh, things that were known by people who lived at that time, even though they really had no direct experience or observation that they could base this on. We all have certain things we know about our culture today, even though we weren't present to see that we kind of know it's happening in culture. So testimony related to what I call firsthand access, that's typically considered hearsay right because you didn't you're not the original source Mm -hmm. but that does not mean that 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 category is untrue or invalid it just means i couldn't use it in a criminal trial so for history's purposes yes it's absolutely valid but it may not be valid for it has to be crossed it has to be examined it has to be tested that's what cold case christianity is all about now the hearsay standard that's fine for criminal trials but it is you can't apply it here you can't apply it to history because eyewitnesses provide information from their their personal experience, what they saw. They pri- provide information from what others uh, told them. And they provide a knowledge of what the culture is like at the time. And all of those things are things that historians uh, embrace to make a case for what happened in the past. Even though some of those things you could never use in a trial, that's a different standard for a different purpose. Unless you're willing, Bill, to jettison history, everything you know. Mm-hmm in history, because that standard would have to be applied, not just to Jesus in history, but to Abraham Lincoln in history, to to anyone you're examining in history. And I don't think most of us are willing to do that. We embrace the fact that there's a difference between the criminal standard and the historical standard.
0: Yeah. And Jim, when you are trying to solve a, a, a cold case murder that's has been unsolved for 30 plus years, you oftentimes have no longer any eyewitness accounts. And you build your entire case on circumstantial evidence, don't you? Well, yeah. And if you have no, lie, you could still build a case. Just on, but here we do have an
1: eyewitness account where you have the gospels. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, look, there's two ways to build the case. If it's indirect evidence, then you got to kind of make sure you have the proper inference. But if it's direct evidence, eyewitness accounts, you have to make sure they're not liars. Okay. Yeah. So this is about uh, the reliability of the eyewitnesses, which is why I spend the entire second section of the book just talking about the four reasons why I know that those gospel accounts are reliable.
0: Mm-hmm. And Jim, didn't the gospel start out originally as as an oral tradition, and can that be trusted? Well, yeah, and I think here's what it comes down to. The question is, you, you know, you can test the oral
1: tradition, too. We want to know how early is the, did the story of Jesus change over time. That's really what people are are, are after when they start attacking oral tradition. Now, now what is an oral tradition? I, you, you know, I'm a speaker and you, you heard me speak a number of years ago on that particular talk and that that particular talk you heard me give, I have given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And if I gave that talk to you today and you compared the wave file mm-hmm. from the talk I gave the, eight years ago, whenever you heard it mm-hmm. to the way the one I, you would see that those wave files would line up the peaks and valleys and the pauses. Cause not only do I say it word for word pretty much the same way. If you, it it actually pauses. I it's I do it the same way. So the assumption with oral tradition is, well, how, how often were they talking about this? You know, it's, it's, if somebody sees something and they don't say anything to anyone for thirty years, well, that's been roaming around in their head for thirty years. Who knows if it's accurate? On the other hand, if I saw something and for thirty years I have been saying it over and over and over again, by the time I get to version sixteen thousand, <laughs> um, you know, I've been saying it consistently. My daughter used to say, you know, I could give your talks. I've heard your talks so many times. I could give them myself. I know all those talks word for word. And I used to tease Frank Turek, the apologist, because we do conferences together. I go, Frank, you, you say the, it's the exact same way the, the jokes are the same. The pauses for the jokes are the same. <laughs> he says, Jim, do you think you're any different? And I realized, no, I'm not different at all. And that's just the nature of the oral tradition of speakers. And if I was in a culture in which everything is transmitted orally, it's even stronger.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think in the end, the, the, the claim is not that the, the authors of the gospels didn't say anything about Jesus and then pen something 30 years later. The claim is that like in the book of Acts, they have been talking about this every day with a sense of urgency, a holy sense of accuracy, because they consider this to be the word of God. And after you know 30 years of saying it, you pretty much are, you, you've got it in your head. And it's, I don't worry about distortion. Also, I think if you look at Paul's statements in the Gospels and how early he was on the road to Damascus and how early he was told by the disciples about First Corinthians 15, that Jesus rose from the grave, I think you can trace that claim that Jesus rose from the grave to just a few years of the resurrection itself. So this is not a claim that is part of mythology that was uh, grow, grew over time as a legend would grow over time, because it it is it can be traced right back in in both the, the Gospels and in the New Testament letters. You can trace it back to the very
0: earliest uh, moments of the Christian uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, after the resurrection, the disciples would be saying the same things over and over and over and over prior to writing the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. And we know, look, we have a record of this,
1: because if you're wondering what they said as as soon as Jesus ascended, it's in the book of Acts. Those claims and what's missing from the book of Acts is all the stuff that happens in the first century you would expect to see in the book of Acts, like the destruction of the temple, the siege of Jerusalem, the death of Peter, the death of Paul, the death of James, the brother of Jesus, the death of Barnabas. That stuff's missing from the book of Acts, even though Luke is he writes about the death of James, the brother of John. Who cares about James, the brother of John? James, the brother of Jesus, was leading the church. Yet you don't mention his death. Well, the most reasonable inference is that these things hadn't happened yet. And this is why it's reasonable to date the book of Acts in in the, you know, in the uh, before, let's be conservative. Well, let's date it before the first missing event, which is around 61. So let's say it's 60. Well, you're already within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And he wrote the book of Luke before he wrote the book of Acts. And so now that dates that earlier. And and he seems to be citing a heavy percentage of Mark's gospel, which means that's coming earlier. By the way, he says that he is conferring with the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So it doesn't surprise me that he's quoting Mark. So I think you can back this up from what's missing in the book of Acts. And through the the traditions that are, we know that Luke was written before Acts, as he tells us this in the first lines of Acts. So I think we've got good reason to believe this is a writing early enough, number one, that it could be written by somebody who was really there to see it. But more importantly, number two, you'd be writing it so early that if somebody knew it wasn't true, they could stop you. If you want to lie about Jesus, you just wait till everyone who knows the truth is dead. Mm -hmm. And if we are got writings that are occurring when everyone who knows the truth is still alive, Well, that's much
0: harder to lie. Yeah. Excellent point. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest, also my friend, and apparently a friend of Greg Kokel. We're going to take a little break and come right back. If you have a question or comment for Jim, you can text it over 877 933 2484. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. His book is Cold Case Christianity. It is now updated and expanded edition. You should get your hands on it. It's an awesome book, and we're going through some uh, frequently asked questions as he has uh, appeared on campuses and conferences all over the country. So let's talk a little bit about church fathers. I've always struggled a little bit with church fathers, especially if there's a church father from like 1,200 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It seems like only church fathers should be people in the book of Acts.
1: Well, and I think that, that um, when you just talk about church fathers, you can divide these right? because the history of the church, and I'm talking about the Antonite. Typically, when I talk about church fathers, I'm talking about the Antonicene church fathers. So, what I'm talking about are those fathers that were those leaders within the church that were that were leading the church in the first 300 years before it became, before Constantine, accepted and embraced Christianity as the religion of the empire. And I, I think that's a fair. So when I'm looking at, for example, uh, when I'm trying to figure out what, what really was taught earliest, um, before perhaps our inclinations to corrupt it would take over, right? And maybe there's mm-hmm. some corruption doctrinally, some corruption. So, so I want to know, um, like those, so I look at people like Polycarp and Ignatius and Clement and Irenaeus and Hippolytus and Origen and Tatian and Justin and Martyr. These are the folks who, who are historically known to have led the church. And and they are people who described the the life of of, of Jesus. There are people who described what he did. They're people who defended Christianity. And so, and I often will reference these folks. For example, in Cold Case Christianity, I'm, I'm referencing the a chain of custody mm-hmm. in which the concept of who Jesus is is transmitted over time. And I mention a lot of these folks because it's going to go through the writings of those folks that you see the picture of who Jesus is. And you can tell, is it changing? Is he becoming more supernatural or is he, is he a simpler rabbi in the beginning and he becomes the Christ of Christianity? Those are the claims that people make. But, but here's the problem. Is that when I use those church fathers and and I reference the sources I'm looking at, uh, people will challenge that and say, well, look, how can you, you can't trust what they say about Jesus and his divinity because some of these church fathers, they were heretics in one way or another, or they held to positions that whatever your denomination is today wouldn't hold to. Okay, fine. So. So it is true that if you look at some of the earliest leaders in the church, there were some folks who would go sideways on certain. This is why we had church councils come together to argue out what is the plain and reading of what's the proper hermeneutic to read the New Testament. What can we infer about the deity of Christ from the New Testament, about the nature of the triune nature of God? These were battles that were fought, not from uh, like personal opinions, but people doing their best to, to, to mine the truth from the New Testament documents. So I do think that you can, you can look at what these church fathers said about Jesus, the claims that are made today and compare them to the early church fathers. And here's why. Number one, differing views. Don't disqualify people. They're not disqualifiers. So in every criminal trial, right, we we get witnesses in front of the the jury, and they hold all kinds of theological and philosophical and political views, right? That differ from me, that differ from the from the, de- the defense attorney. They even differ from each other. These witnesses, they they have different worldviews. But those secondary beliefs, those are those all matter, because witnesses got to limit their testimony to the observations related to the case so imagine for example that a witness uh, sees a a suspect like run to his car right and then he enters on the driver's side he starts the engine and 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 then he hesitates just prior to speeding away from the location okay so at the trial this witness comes up and he sits down and we ask him to describe what he's what he saw and and he he describes he describes the actions and then a question is asked by the defense hey why do you think he hesitated before he fled the scene okay that's stop right there no hold on I object to that question because mm-hmm. he can testify that he paused, but he cannot testify to, as to why he thinks he paused that that's that that that's beyond his knowledge. I agree. He's guessing. So so we're asking you to testify about what you heard, not what you think or what you saw, not what you think it meant. Same thing is true with these, with these ancients. We want to know what did you hear about Jesus, not what, how do you interpret that then? What do you think that means? I'm looking to confirm what the earliest story of Jesus is, not to confirm what you think as a theologian that means. Secondly, observations, they're more important than interpretations. So, so when you're examining, um, these, these church leaders, these early church fathers, you know, I'm, I'm way more interested in the facts that are related to what to Jesus, right? What do they What do they say about how Jesus was being communicated than their interpretations? I want to know what was described about Jesus, what's being said from one generation to the next, not how each leader developed their theology. of. Like in other words, is the virgin birth described again and again and again? I, and you may draw some theological principles from the virgin birth. I don't care. I just want to know, is that data point is that miracle? Is the resurrection an early claim? I want to know what's being described. And so as a result, I'm just concerned more with their descriptions of the gospel record and the details that they include in the historical narratives. Now, so when a church father starts off and starts to pontificate on some theological position or some interpretation, well, I'm not as interested in that. That's 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 not I, I recognize that that's outside the scope, the same way it would be outside the scope of a witness. That's outside the scope of his testimony. So when I'm examining an early church father, I'm only interested in what were the facts about Jesus's life that you receive from somebody else who preceded you. I don't care about what do you think that means. So you don't have to agree with these theological positions they hold. You don't. All you're looking for is what is the data upon which they are building their theology, because the data point is what I'm tracing. I want to know, evidentially, is the story of 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 jesus changing so if i got something on the stand and i want to know what did jesus say not what do you think that means or what do you think he was thinking when he said it that doesn't matter to me
0: Mm -hmm. and that's why you should get jim's book cold case christianity updated and expanded edition available right now jay warner wallace is my guest so jim why, why should we trust the new testament canon and why should we trust it was assembled correctly well, a couple a couple things. Uh,
1: number one, and I'll just focus on a small aspect of this, um, and and that is the way it is, uh, it is actually collected is intriguing to me. Um, there's a certain practical utility in the way it was collected. First of all, I love the fact that they only collected the work of eyewitnesses, right? So like Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas was used by the early church. It's not in your canon, not an eyewitness first clement was used by the early church it's a beautiful letter it's he's a student of paul but he's not an eyewitness therefore he's what this is why paul for example makes such a big deal i saw the risen christ he, i'm i am also an eyewitness At last of all as to one untimely born he appeared to me also he says in acts in first uh, corinthians 15 so I think that's important that you're, you're first of all only considering those things that are written by alleged eyewitnesses. And then there's this practical utility, you know, does, does the next standard is, well, do these reflect the divine nature and purposes of God, right? That, that, that the scripture is, is trying to assist us as, as his children in understanding him better. In other words, were the texts useful in teaching people about God? Were they understandable? This is why, for example, and were they accessible? This is why, for example, Revelation is comes in is not included in some of the earliest lists of canon because it was so confusing. So these are the areas of concern, right? That guided the selection process. Was it an eyewitness account? Is it is it edifying? Does it tell us something about God? Is it easy to understand? Do we know who wrote it? This is why, for example, Hebrews is as it, as it was a lot of the early church fathers like I'm not quite sure if we should include it. We don't know for sure who wrote it. Mm-hmm. So that's important, okay? Now, the the collectors, this is what's interesting. They had firsthand access to these guys. They had the firsthand, the collectors had firsthand access to the people who wrote the Gospels. And what's interesting is the geographic diversity of the early leaders, because they're trying to collect this, 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 this canon of Scripture. And the disciples of the apostles, right? These folks who had access to the apostles, they're preserving the testimony of the eyewitnesses And guess what? Regardless of where they are on in the Roman Empire, they are consistently describing the testimony in their own letters to each other, even though they're separate in their own lists of canon, even though they're separated by thousands of miles in a time in history when it's not easy to say, what are you collecting over there? What do you consider authoritative over there? So, for example, in Rome, Clement, around AD 95, he's affirming the New Testament. He collected a lot of New Testament books and documents, and he held them in very high regard. And more importantly, he actually thought those documents were already known well enough by his readers to be recognized when he just quotes them or he alludes to them in his letter. That's not all, though. In Antioch, on the other side of the the, uh, empire, you got Ignatius, who he's affirming the New Testament also. He's the first one who actually writes the expression, it is written, When he's quoting from the New Testament documents. So it's pretty clear he considers this to be like, you know, on the same par as the Old Testament. And so he's far away. In in Smyrna, right? Polycarp, another corner of the empire, he's also doing this. He's he believed the New Testament documents were scripture. He thought they were comparable to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in one chapter of his letter, he wrote in the sacred books. It is said in these scriptures, be ye angry and not sin and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Where's that from? Well, that's Psalm 44 4 and Ephesians 426. And he quotes them as though they were equally and equally inspired. What's traumatic to me is that it's got eyewitness accounts collected in corners of the empire and the lists and the content and the descriptions of Jesus match. Hmm. That to me is remarkable. And this is another sign that you have the right books
0: in your canon. Wow. So good. Jim, thank you once again. I'm just so uh, delighted that I can be back on the air with you. I know you were in Alaska a whole bunch this s- summer and you uh, was were doing a lot of ministry, but it's just so nice to hear your voice. Well, good to be back with you, Bill. Yeah. Bill. you
1: know how much how interesting you are to me, so oh, I don't I, need to so say anymore. Do I? Just, yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 have, have a great uh, rest of your day, and thanks, brother, to Susie and all. Thanks, I, all right. Thanks so much. Yep, Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. His book is called Cold Case Christianity. It's updated and expanded edition, and I do recommend it. I don't recommend tons and tons of books. I do always suggest you go to Amazon, and you can probably get the first chapter of most books you hear about. On Faith Radio, you can download the first chapter and read it and get familiar with it. If you bought every book that we were talking about on Faith Radio, you'd have to buy about 20 books a week. So that's not what our intention is. We want you to just get the ones that are in your interest, in your wheelhouse. So, uh, But this is one I personally like. It's called Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week.